Would you please join me as we pray? Father, we thank you for the story of Abraham and Sarah. Thank you that we now get to reflect back uh, on uh, what we've seen and what you've done in their lives and consider uh, what you're doing in our lives as well. And so we ask, Lord, that you please help us now uh, as we uh, as we spend these last uh, moments considering Abraham. Uh, teach us, we ask in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we're, we're finishing up today our series on the life of Abraham, uh, and it might seem kind of odd for, the, for us to begin a series on somebody's death by talking about looking forward, but I want to talk to you about looking forward. Uh, when you look forward to something, usually what that means is that the thing you're looking forward to is something that you have high hopes is going to be something enjoyable, right? So I'm looking forward to having lunch with you means that I'm expecting that the lunch that we are going to have is going to be a pleasurable experience and that I'm going to leave uh, being happy that I was with you, right? Uh, But also when we say that we are looking forward to something, it means that the thing we're looking forward to is off in the distance. It's not something that is right in front of us, right? So for example, I could say, I'm looking forward to my vacation. Uh, That vacation could be next week. That vacation could be in six months, but because it's not now, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Why on earth are we talking about looking forward to something when the text that we are looking at this morning uh, is talking about the end of the road? I have a friend who preached a sermon years ago on this passage and the sermon title was the end of the road. Uh, it's the end of the story. Uh, and what I want us to do is I want us to not just look at Genesis 25, but I want us to look at Genesis 25 in connection to Hebrews 11. Uh, and by looking at those two passages together, what we see is that there was this other story that was unfolding. Uh, and now we're in a better position to look at it because we've gone through the story of Abraham so we can look back now on the story of Abraham uh, and see what it is that God was going to do. The, the, we are reminded of it this morning, right, with Casey being here. Death is a certainty. Uh, just as Dennis died, you and I are all going to die. That is the reality of life. And so Abraham has died, but even in his death, we are being told, thanks to the book of Hebrews, uh, that there was another thing going on, that Abraham was looking forward to having Isaac, yes, Abraham was looking forward to buying that plot of land in order to bury his wife. But while Abraham was looking forward to those things, he was looking forward to something else. So as we start down the road of Genesis 25, what we begin to see is that God's faithfulness. It may not be really evident at first, because at at first it just seems like a bunch of lists. If you have Genesis 25 open, I encourage you to have it open. Uh, If you have your Bible open, what you see right after the verses that we read is that you have a bunch of lists of names. Uh, So this is one of those chapters that, you know, let's be honest, right? This is one of those chapters that you get to and you go, hmm, lots of names. Gabe did a fantastic job saying those names. Um, But, you know, the reality is that when we don't have to read those things, we usually end up glossing over them. But what's actually going on here is uh, we're being told how God has been faithful to Abraham. Uh, So remember the story, right? At age 75, Abraham gets called out of Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, He goes up to the land of promise. At age 99, 
uh, still one of the promises that he had been given back then was that he would uh, have a child, that he would have land, that he would get to live to a good old age, uh, and that he would have many nations that would be descended from him. Uh, And at age 99, 24 years later, none of those things had come to pass. Uh, At age 99, he is given the sign of circumcision. At age 100, Isaac is born. So at this point, at age 100, he's got two sons. But one of the sons has to go away because there's such rivalry between the son he has with Hagar and the son he has with Sarah. At age 137, Sarah dies. And finally, 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 he owns some land. Uh, But he basically owns a field, some trees, and a cave, and the cave is a burial, burial tomb. Um, that's the amount of land that he owns. And now we come to age 175, and he dies. So sometime after Sarah's death, he remarries. He marries a woman by the name of Keturah, and with Keturah, he has six sons. So now Abraham is the father of eight sons. Uh, and again, you'd be very tempted, right, to gloss over all of the names that are being given to us in this chapter. So you look at, for example, in Genesis 25, verses 1 to 4, uh, if you have your Bible open, what you see is all of the sons of Keturah and all of, uh, some of Abraham's grandchildren through those sons. We're, we're not told if he has any daughters. Uh, it's quite possible, but we just don't know. Um, and then you skip down ahead a little bit to Genesis 25, verses 12 to 18, and we're given a genealogy of Ishmael. It's kind of odd, right? Why on earth? Ishmael is not a central character to the story. Why on earth are we told about the genealogy of Ishmael? And then we get to verse 19 uh, and the Isaac narrative begins. So here is the start of the Isaac story, which will lead us into Jacob and Esau and then Jacob's 12 sons and so on and so forth. God was faithful. The point of all of those names is this. God was faithful in keeping his promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. That's what all those names mean. God was faithful to Abraham in keeping his promise that he would be the father of many nations. Then what we read is that Isaac is kind of the central character, right? Abraham sends all of the other sons away to the east in order for him to be able to pass the bulk of his inheritance to Isaac, We're going to come to that and like, what on earth is going on there? Because that kind of seems weird, doesn't it? Uh, But what's going on here is that God was faithful to keep his promise to Abraham that he and Sarah would have a son. And then we have this curious fact that Abraham dies at 175 years old. Right? God was faithful in keeping his promise to Abraham, back in Genesis 15, verse 15, you're going to live to be a good old age. I think 175 qualifies as living toward a good old age. Uh, And so what you see is that God has been faithful to Abraham in all of these different ways, but then we come to his death. Uh, And the reality is that we are all going to die. Uh, Abraham breathes his last, and even this is a really fascinating thing. Uh, Even in this, there is a sign of God's faithfulness to Abraham, even in his death. Why? Uh, There's this kind of curious thing that verse 8 tells us. 
It says, Abraham breathed his last and he died at a good old age. Ding, 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 ding. Reference back to Genesis 15, 15. A man full of years and he was gathered to his people. That phrase shows up 10 times in the first five books of the Bible. So we call the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. Uh, and in the Pentateuch, this particular phrase shows up 10 times. It shows up with some other variations in other parts of the Bible. But every time it shows up in the Pentateuch, it's a significant person that has died and is gathered to his people. Uh, Joyce Baldwin was a, an Old Testament scholar who uh, wrote a commentary on the book of Genesis, and she writes this. She says, this is a beautiful idiom which lays stress on the resumption of fellowship with loved ones after death. What does that mean? What Joyce Baldwin is suggesting, uh, and what we as people who read the story of Abraham through the lens of Jesus, right? When we read the story of Abraham, we read the story of Abraham, uh, and we put on our Jesus eyeglasses, Right? And with those Jesus eyeglasses, we are filtering the story of Abraham through what the New Testament teaches us. Did Abraham have a full-born theology of resurrection? I don't know. But we do. And so we can read this phrase and be reminded of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. At the moment we die... Those who die with faith in Christ, you don't disappear. You don't go off into the nethers, whatever. The phrase, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die is this nihilistic phrase, right? There's nothing after death, but that's not the Christian story. And in fact, we're going to see in a second just how significant that is for the life of Abraham when we come to, uh, when we come to look at Abraham through the lens of, second, of uh, Hebrews 11. Now, Abraham, God is faithful to Abraham. See all these different ways, right? He, he's the father of many nations. He has a child through Sarah. Uh, he and Sarah have a child together named Isaac. He lives to be a good old age. He is gathered to his people. Faithfulness, 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 faithfulness. Promises kept, promises kept, promises kept. Now, Abraham responds in obedience, where do you get that? Well, interestingly, right? So we have this curious thing that happens in verse six. If you have verse six open, uh, if you have your Bible open, you look at verse six, what happens? Abraham sends all of the sons of Keturah away. Now, in our culture, that sounds cold. That sounds mean-spirited. And if we're reading the through the lens of our culture, we would be, you know, understandably, we would say, what kind of a father is Abraham? Because in our culture, fathers don't send their children away. In our culture, children leave their fathers, right? You graduate, you go, you graduate high school, you go off to college. We are preparing our children to go off and be dependent. We don't send them away, they leave us. And so it'd be easy for us to read that and be like, dude, what kind of a scumbag is Abraham? But in fact, uh, keep in mind, it's not like Abraham can, uh, you know, it's not like Abraham lives in San Diego and is able to buy houses for all of these kids so that they can go on to be, you know, a lawyer, someone in biotech, uh, and not that anybody can afford to buy six houses in San Diego, but, um, but that's not the world that they're in. Abraham was a shepherd. Abraham had animals. 
Abraham had lots and lots and lots of animals. You remember what happened in Genesis 13 with Lot? Right? Abraham was a, far, was a shepherd. Lot was a shepherd. Abraham lots of, had lots of animals. Lot had lots of animals. And they all start bickering with each other about who gets the best grazing land. And so Lot goes his way. Abraham goes his way. So in effect, what's happening here is that, that Abraham is, I think he's trusting God. God has said, you're going to be the father of many nations. And so Abraham, the logic for Abraham, I believe, is like, well, these kids are going to be very, very, very prosperous. And you can't have seven prosperous individuals all on top of each other. And so what does he do? He does something he didn't need to do. The, 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 uh, the law of the firstborn son, which was the cultural norm for Abraham's day, was that Isaac got everything. But what we read is that Abraham gave gifts to those other sons. He didn't need to do that. He gave gifts to them and he sends them off. And he sends them off, I believe, because he wants them to prosper. But he sends them off because he knows that Isaac needs to be here. Isaac needs to be in this location near the grave of Machpelah because that's the property that belongs to Isaac. And so this is an act of obedience, uh, which if we're not trying to understand this culturally, it'd be easy for us to be like, dude, this guy is not a very good dad. But in fact, I would argue he's being a really, really thoughtful father in this regard. Now, let's jump to Hebrews. Uh, And if you have your Bible open and you don't know where the book of Hebrews is, it's really easy. Go to the end of the Bible, work your way backwards past Revelation, the letters of John, the letters of Peter, uh, James, and you'll find the book of Revelation. So that's a fairly thick book, so you'll probably land somewhere. Chapter 11 is where we're going to go. And as you work your way there, um, I want to help you kind of situate the, the, why we're looking at this passage. So, um, some of you may know this. I'm a, I'm a history buff. Uh, I like reading history. And I specifically, I really enjoy reading biographies of U.S. presidents. Uh, so I set a goal for myself a long time ago uh, that I was going to read a bi- at least one biography on every U.S. president. Uh, so biographies are great because they give you a sense of the person, but they also give you a sense of the, of the historical moment. Uh, and it's a really fascinating way to understand uh, the history of our country by, by reading it through the lens of the people who have led our country up until this point. Uh, and, and by the way, in case you're interested, I just finished Nixon. Uh, and yes, I'm going to Yorba Linda to the Nixon Presidential Library. Um, one of my great regrets of Boston, I lived right next to the JFK Library, and I never went. I just kept putting it off, and then COVID happened, and anyway... Um, biographies do one of two things. Some biographies will just relate to you the facts. They'll just tell you what happened. They're kind of retelling the story of the individual and they will give very little uh, assessment or help you interpret the events that happened. Other biographies are much more intentional in giving you an assessment of the individual, of what they did, especially what they did in light of uh, global situations and things that were happening culturally at the time. Um, What I would like to suggest to you is that Hebrews 11 is giving us that type of glance 
into Abraham's life. The Hebrews 11 is almost like if, if Genesis 12 to 25 is the biography of Abraham, then Hebrews 11 is the afterword, right? It's, it's the author of scripture, God, giving you a sense of, let's go back over the life of Abraham and let me give you an assessment of what was going on in his life. Uh, kids, how many of you have read Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Or adults, how many of you have read Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Really? People. Okay, so this illustration is probably going to flop, but your assignment today is to go home and read Voyage of the Dawn Treader, or at least go watch the movie. Uh, so there's a character in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, for those of you that can track with me. Um, there's a character in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader called Reapy Cheap, and Reapy Cheap is a mouse. All right. And uh, he is a valiant warrior. And at the beginning of the voyage of the Dawn Treader, we're told that there was this word of prophecy that was spoken over Reapy Cheap. And the word of prophecy was this. It said, where sky and water meet, where the waves grow sweet, doubt not Reapy Cheap to find all you seek. There is the utter east. And so the entire story of the voyage of the Dawn Treader, they're on a voyage uh, and they're heading east. Uh, and uh, the, the, the king of Narnia is on a quest to find these seven lords. But the entire time that this voyage is going on, Reapy Cheap is pushing everybody. We got to go east. We got to go east. We got to go east. There are times when everybody's like, hey, we got to turn back. And he's like, no, we can't turn back. We have to keep going. And he's doing all these different things. But, the, but what is driving Reapy Cheap throughout the story is what? He is trying to get to Aslan's country. His eyes are set on a promise that was given to him that he was going to get to go into Aslan's country. All right, now keep that image in mind. So what happens is that Abraham is given a promise. He's given the promise of a son. He's looking forward to, remember we said looking forward to, right? Something in the future, something that you know is gonna bring you delight. He's looking forward to the birth of a son. Sometimes he grasps at it in ways that he shouldn't, right? And so Ishmael was born, but he's looking forward to the birth of Isaac. When Sarah, die, he's, Sarah dies, he's looking forward to being able to buy a plot of land in order to be able to bury his wife. But what the book of Hebrews is telling us is that while Abraham was looking forward to having Isaac, and while Abraham was looking forward to having that little plot of land in order to bury his wife, he was also looking forward to something else. There was something else that was capturing his vision, something else that was guiding his stuff, something else that was motivating him in the way that he lived his life. Hebrews 11 verses 9 and 13 tell us what? That he was a foreigner and a stranger. Do you remember? We saw that last week, right? When, when he went to the, uh, is it the Hittites? Uh, he went to the, I think it's the Hittites. He went to the Hittites and he said, I'm a foreigner and a stranger among you. And when we saw that last week, we we're like, yeah, he's a foreigner and a stranger because he has no land. He owns no property. All of a sudden now, we're like, wait a minute, there's a, there's a second level of meaning to this. There's an interesting story. I, I haven't read it, but I'm, I'm planning on reading it. It was the cover of Christianity Today uh, is talking about the reality of uh, our housing crisis. It says there are many mansions in heaven, but we'd like something sooner. Uh, how many of us who rent can resonate with that, right? Where, where Abraham is, um, was... He, he, 
this is an anachronistic way of putting it, all right? But, but he was renting, right? He, he didn't own land. And yet his posture was, it's really fascinating. It dawned on me last night, actually this morning when I was uh, going over my notes. Verse nine says, by faith, he made his home in the promised land. He made it his home. He lived there. He, he settled there. And yet, and yet, like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents. So he dwelt there. He, he made a home for himself there, but he knew that that was not the end of the story. He had his eyes set on something else. He was looking forward to another place. He, he had hoped for Isaac and he had longed for Isaac and then Isaac came, but Hebrews is telling us that, that while he longed for the birth of his son, he was longing for another person. What was he longing for? Hebrews 11.10. For Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 11 is really fascinating. So Hebrews 11, you've got this, uh, you know, these different people are being talked about. We, 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 uh, we read about Abel, we read about Enoch, we read about Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob up until verse uh, 15, I think it is. And then verse 16, we read this. Instead, they, so they refers to uh, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. You got that? All right. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not a call, excuse me, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. I don't, I, I don't know this, but I, am, I would put money down on the fact that when C.S. Lewis was writing Voyage of the Dawn Treader and he was talking about Aslan's country, I would put money down on the fact that it's this passage that he is reflecting on. The promise of a new heavens and a new earth. So you see, Abraham... He absolutely, he was longing for the things that God promised him in this life, but he had his eyes fixed on something else. He had his eyes fixed on heaven. There's an article that came out in the Atlantic recently. Uh, The title of the article is The End of the Millennial Lifestyle Subsidy. Did any of you read this article? It's a fascinating article. So the premise of this article was that uh, those of us who have enjoyed all of the amenities of the ideal urban life, uh, you know, uh, Uber, Lyft, Postmates, uh, Casper mattress, you know, you name it, right? All the streaming services that we have access to, um, that all of those things we have enjoyed because venture capitalists have put thousands and millions of dollars into these things, hoping for the next gangbuster company. And that there's a moment coming, this article is postulating, there's a moment coming where the bottom is going to drop out of, out of all of those things. You just can't continue to live life this way. We have been discipled to believe a promise. We have been discipled to believe a promise that I can order something on Amazon this morning and expect to have it at my house tonight. We actually, just this week, uh, my wife and I were talking about this. Uh, you know, they do the, uh, 
um, if you wait till Tuesday, we'll give you a $2 digital credit. How many of you take advantage of that? You're like, nah, it's free. I'm going to get it tomorrow. Why would I wait till Tuesday? Um, but that's, that's shaping us in a certain way. There's a promise that we're being sold. There's a promise that we're being discipled to believe. And the promise is that this is the good life. Now, don't get me wrong. I use Uber all the time. I love good streaming services. Um, I'm all about, you know, I think uh, ButcherBox. I think we just got a ButcherBox subscription. We're going to try that out. Uh, Those things are great. There's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. But we have to recognize that what we're being sold, what we're being promised is that these are the things that we can look forward to. See that? These are the things that we can look forward to being able to take an Uber ride as we come home from, you know, our co-working space. And then we grab, this is from the article. You know, they give you this mythical person that does all of these different things. And the point is that every single company that this mythical person uses uh, is, is absolutely not profitable. And what ends up happening? So what ends up happening is that as we are being conditioned to, uh, to have instant gratification, I can get my phone out right now and I probably can get an Uber ride in about 10 minutes right now. That's fast. Guess what? You can't read the Bible that way. Scripture is not instant gratification. Scripture is by definition delayed gratification because in order to draw all of the benefit that scripture has for you, you have to read it not just once, but again and again and again. There's an author by the name of Eugene Peterson who wrote a book uh, titled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That is the call of the Christian life. It is a long obedience in the same direction. And that is not our culture. The ease of ordering things on Amazon makes the difficulty of prayer seem insurmountable. Why would I work hard at prayer when everything else comes so easy to me? And this is even true, you know, like take that from this kind of the larger sin, bring it down to, to, to where we live in San Diego, right? Um, uh, you know, it's fascinating being, you know, having been here almost a year uh, and, and just um, trying to get more and more of a sense of like, what are the, what are the values that animate uh, San Diego, right? The weather, you know how much y'all talk about the weather? I mean, don't get me wrong, the weather's nice. It's been a little hot, but that's okay. Um, the beach, tacos, uh, beer, um, Mexico, right? Uh, hey, you can get, nobody does this. Everyone's like, oh, you can go to the mountains and go to the beach. And I always ask, have you ever done that? And like, no, but you can do it. <laughs> All of that, right, is, is there's, a, there's a, a pleasure to life. There is a, a laid backness to life that is a very dominant part of the San Diego culture, I think. And all these things shape us in a certain way. So what do we do, right? So the, the, the call of Abraham, as we end this time in Abraham's life, what we're being called to, what we're being called to is not to say, well, those things are bad, so we can't enjoy them. No, not at all, right? Tacos are great. 
But the call is that our hope is not in whether or not we're going to be able to buy a house. Our hope is not on whether or not I'm going to be able to get something that I order this morning and have Amazon deliver it to me tonight before nine. That is not the promises that God has given to us. The promises that he has given to us is that there is a city that he has prepared for us. That there is a new world, that there is a new San Diego. There is a renewed San Diego that you and I are going to get to enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. And in that renewed San Diego, we will not have to worry about human trafficking. We will not have to worry about foster care. We will not have to worry about um, uh, refugees and immigrants. We're not going to have to worry about homelessness. Because all those sad, broken things will no longer be true. So what Abraham is doing is he's inviting us. What scripture is doing is inviting us. What Jesus is doing is he's inviting us to reflect on what he has done. Because the reason that we can have our eyes fixed on heaven is because Jesus rose from the dead. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no resurrection for you and me. But it is the resurrection of Jesus that allows us to fix our eyes on heaven. So how do we do that? So here's the thing. I got an answer for you, but I'm just going to tell you up front, it takes work. I was going to be honest with you. It's hard. You're going to have to learn how to do it. It's not going to come easy. And that's good for you. It's good for you that it will be hard. It's good for you that you're going to have to learn it. It's good for you. And it is this, to meditate on heaven. John Musiyima is a pastor in Nairobi, Kenya, who wrote an article uh, talking about uh, why we should meditate on heaven. And this is what he writes. He says, of all the beneficial Christian practices, the most neglected is meditation. In our busy world, and this is in Kenya, right? So this is true here. Isn't it amazing? A Kenyan pastor can say this, and we in San Diego can go, yes. In our busy world, we do not often set time aside for deep and focused reflection on biblical truth. Because it's hard. Because it's delayed gratification. That's me, not him. We, when we do, eventually, when we do eventually get around to doing it, we rarely meditate on heaven. And so what I would like to suggest to you is this. What I would like to suggest to you is that you cultivate a practice, that we cultivate a practice in our hearts of meditating on heaven. How do you do that? God has told you an awful lot about heaven in his word. Revelation 5, Revelation 19, 20, 21, 22, 1 Thessalonians 4. All scattered throughout Jesus' teachings, parables of the kingdom. Every parable of the kingdom is a parable about heaven. Now, the temptation for some of us, the temptation for some of us is to make that an academic exercise, right? So, you know, I study the Bible and I end up like creating sermon outlines in my head. That's an occupational hazard. Um, 
What I'm inviting you is not to like try to figure out, well, this means this and this means that. What I'm inviting you to do is to just simply say, wow, isn't heaven gonna be awesome? You are in heaven, the streets are paved with gold. Can you like just, just sit and think about that? The streets are paved with gold. In heaven, there's a tree. And that tree brings life and healing to everybody. Like you could probably spend a good chunk of time just thinking, huh, what are the ways that if I could use the healing power of that tree, I would use the healing power of that tree in my life today. That's heaven. And so you see why Abraham was able to walk through this life and come to the moment of death and not despair that all he had was a burial plot. Can you imagine the angst that some of us, let's be honest, if what if you got to the end of the life and the only property that we owned was our burial plot? Like even saying that out loud makes me go, But Jesus never promised us that we would be able to own a home. Jesus never promised us that we would be able to get an Uber ride. Jesus never promised us that we could have how many different streaming services available. He didn't promise us that we would live in a place where there's really amazing tacos and great things to drink. He didn't promise any of those things. What he promised you was himself. What he promised you is that he said, this was a promise. You remember this? I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. That place that Abraham was longing for, Jesus told you, I'm going to go back to heaven because I got to get it ready for you. Now, I have to think that if Jesus is the designer of a city, that it's going to be a pretty cool city. That it's going to be a pretty magnificent city. And so you realize that that if that's what we're looking to, if that's where our eyes are fixed, again, it's not that we ignore the things of this world. It's not that we don't live for this world, right? In fact, the, the John Musumir article talks about the fact that one of the reasons we meditate on heaven is because by meditating on heaven, we are better equipped to serve this world. But that's what we do. We are looking for, forward to, a heavenly city. We are looking forward to a new country. We are looking forward to a renewed San Diego, a renewed earth. We're looking forward to a city whose builder and architect is God. Yes, amen. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for, for giving us Hebrews 11 that allows us to reconsider and see with a new lens what it is that Abraham hoped in. 
Uh, Lord, please help us to develop and cultivate in our lives and hearts a practice of meditating on heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.